Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Recorded live. Hello and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. I'm Maggie Rogers, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. John and Peter are the authors of The Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each guest is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of citizens. And today we're pleased to be joined by Anne Livingston, who when I read through that introduction, I thought, oh boy, is she doing this? Um, <laughs> Anne is a longtime community organizer and invented the movement to eliminate harms associated with drug use. In 1998, she co-founded the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, which helps people who use drugs to live healthy, productive lives and ensure that they have a real voice in their community. So after they've talked for a while, we'll open up the call. There are two ways to join. If you dialed in, press star eight on your phone and you'll be put into a queue. If you're following along on the web, simply post your comments in the chat window. We're interested in your thoughts and reflections and hope you'll share them. Leslie Steven, our website manager, is supporting us in the chat room. And now I'll turn it over to John to begin the conversation. Welcome everybody and uh, welcome Anne. Anne uh, Livingston is a an old friend, and I think she uh, brings to us some great insights into the world of organizing. In fact, if I had to title this, I would say, how do you organize the unorganizable or people that are thought to be unorganizable? Anne uh, has been uh, a principal in the development of an organization of drug, drug users in Vancouver. It's a particular neighborhood in terms of its focus, it isn't uh, citywide. And Anne, I wonder if we could begin by uh, your telling us how you first got involved in the neighborhood and uh, with the concerns of the people there. Yes, um, I moved to this neighborhood in 1993, and it's a very old part of Vancouver, and it's uh, full of single-room occupancy hotels. But there was a family-centered housing co-op two blocks from what they call Ground Zero and uh, at Maine and Hastings. And um, I uh, had um, certainly knew you from having a child who, I think he was 10 or 11 at the time, um, who has cerebral palsy and autism. And um, um, you certainly rocked my world in terms of understanding what was the best parent I could be for a child like that and um, what were services and those kind of things. So um, it was very noticeable that there was a lot of people dying. We had a very high rate of drug overdose in the 90s, which again, we have again recently, but the, um, people were outside and they had nowhere to go. <clears throat> and I thought that the smartest thing we could do was to have them come together and um you know, well, I guess form an association. I don't even know if I was thinking that. I thought we could just approach the politicians and tell them um, they could fix this problem, <laughs> which is humorous now, but <laughs> that's how I got involved. As a busy how did you think mom, the, pardon? How did, you, how did you think the politicians could fix the problem? Well, it was so, um, and it's still very obvious to me, but... Uh, um, they're a very stubborn lot, um, politicians. Um, mm -hmm. The social services, which is the welfare, you know, which gives out a monthly check for people who are destitute, um, and then the health uh, department, they have clashing, um, you know, uh, they're, they're working at cross-purposes as well. Then the police are really working at cross-purposes with those two ministries. And then the courts, they are... Um, not understanding who they're sentencing and the jails are holding people in such a way that they're damaging their health. And, you know, for some reason I see how it could 
not be so terrible. You know, th- that's the kind of thing I thought we would mm-hmm. uh, be able to have uh, a discussion about policy and, and um, you know, basic principles of, of um, good, uh, just good planning and what, what, what should we do when someone's in this kind of, uh, you know, when someone's destitute and sort of on the street and has reached their low ebb, what would we do with them? Um, and what they've done in my neighborhood, and I think many neighborhoods, is add more and more police to the neighborhood. And so you thought uh, if if people got together, they might begin to come up with uh, a, a way of making their lives, from their view, uh, better. Uh, tell us... Uh, I know you have some thoughts on how how it is you organize people. What, if I'm going to be an organizer, what are the kind of principles you followed as you uh, engaged folks in that neighborhood uh, to to begin to try to change their lives by defining it themselves? When we first started, we had no money, and I had uh, uh, quite a big apartment with three bedrooms, and so the living room and dining room were quite large, and um, I know that um, there was a number of meetings that were held, and I was actually approached by people who were in the rave scene, and raves at that time were illegal, and um, so they were a bit uh, sort of edgy, and and um, I don't even know the right subculture, but the um, the um, raves did become legal, and they sort of dropped away, but they envisioned a, a number of drug user groups, people fighting for the rights for people to smoke marijuana. And um, you know people who were um, uh, you know working to stop overdose deaths. That's a very different group. And then people who do ecstasy at raves. So there is some unity. But I I got to work, and um, the other groups didn't get to work the way I did. <laughs> and so the first principle that we had then was that everyone had my home number, and we didn't have any money. I mean, before we started Vandu, and um, um, I invited them to my house for the sort of board meetings, um, and then you know that that um, it, it you know I had always been around this. My mother is a community organizer, I guess, and um, you know that seemed I knew what you did, and that's what you do. So, but some of the interesting um, things that I realized about that, I guess later I I didn't you know you're just busy and you don't think a lot, but it was very surprising for some people that I invited to my home, they had never been invited to someone's home like me, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and we were poor as dirt, but we, were, we weren't we were as poor as them, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it was a, a very, um, I think people were complimented and um, encouraged very much that, that that was, that it was going to be a very personal thing, that I knew them and they were my friends and they had my home number, that kind of thing was a very good principle to begin. And then what uh, you began to get active in public life uh, and uh, what what kinds of principles uh, guided you there? Well, the the um in the earliest days of this terrible trouble where so many people were dying and um you know I I thought we you make every effort all the time. That's a kind of thing, you know, try every door, lift up every rock and look under it. Look for allies in the places you'd expect them and look at ally, for allies in the places you wouldn't expect them. But, you know, that constant hunt. Um, I ran for city council at one point just so I could Ooh. say um, uh, I did it three times altogether. The first, uh, and I really focused on this. They, I don't know if you've ever run for office, but they, they give you three minutes and then the then the microphone goes dead, and there's 20 other people lined up. And uh, so I'd say there's 19 uh, murders, and there's 22 pedestrian deaths, and there's 250 people who died from drug overdose in our city last year. And then I would link it to their houses being broken into. So it was it, it was people really sort of were startled, and um, as I was too when I found these things out. So it, it became. Um, I never won the election, but other people who did win the election, they'd say, what about what she said? Um, So it had a, um, you know, you were revealing something that was concealed. And um, 
so yeah, those. I mean, I've I've made a list of principles of organizing because I think once you get funded, which we did um, after a few years, so from '93 till '90, um, uh, what would it be '98? Uh, we had no funding really, just this ground, you know, little bits of funding, and we were um, very bold. It was the people I worked with who were more bold than me, but their boldness was was. Um, very surprising. We rented a storefront and we invited users. We had a meeting every week to govern the storefront and then we had a meeting every week to schedule it. And we had so little funding that you sort of got a $10 stipend for being there for 12 hours and a little packet of tobacco. So if you were a smoker, they didn't take all your cigarettes and um, coffee. And then it was kind of a drop-in. And it quickly became a what would be called an illegal or unsanctioned injection site. And um, we were shocked at how much the police state left us alone for a period of time anyway. And um, so that was a very um, steep, uh, it, was, it, was, <clears throat> it was surprising. <clears throat> I think that when we do civil disobedience, we learn to do it in a way that's um, as civilized as we can with as much information as we can. So one of the great techniques was to have the drug users know everything that certainly I could find out and um, some of the other people I was working with were more academic than myself. So they'd say, there's these things called drug user unions in Europe. And do you know the Swiss, they, they um, prescribe pure heroin to people who are addicted to heroin. These were things some of the people in the group knew, but many didn't. So these were very interesting things to them um, as they were criminalized and couldn't get the drugs they needed and were always... Um, um, there was a kind of a behavior modification approach that if you, people punished them and made, like I guess it's tough love, if people made their lives just so horrid, they might see the light and then they would stop using and that's, there was a, a lot of that going on which um, wasn't resulting in much more than a big pile of dead bodies. And um, so we had a um, you know, learning these things about other places, what they did, and talking about them um, really was a... You'd see people change so completely that they didn't belong anywhere. They were not welcome anywhere. And then um, they could join a group that the very thing that had them kicked out of everywhere was the criteria for belonging. And um, it would take people almost a little while to let that settle inside themselves to say, I belong here, I'm a member. And that's a tremendously powerful um, motivator for people who um, have had nothing. And um, they, they get a fierce kind of ownership of the group, which um, is good, I think. And um, So you have... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, a kind of meeting process. I, I know it's emerged. Could you describe that? Yeah. So the the meeting uh, process is, you know, what issues do we have? So that's kind of that um, bitch session or moaning sessions, as people call them. But the <laughs> beauty of it is, is you say you're doing research, and you actually are. You want to hear this. Um, I could never know in my three bedroom apartment what was going on in their lives, and. Um, you know, I could hear the sirens. I, I knew there was trouble, but I didn't. Um, it, it's a complex and difficult um, situation that they're in. So it took a lot of, um, you know, people would say uh, they were uh, picked up and released on their own recognizance or they were put in remand. I didn't know what any of these phrases meant. And um, so it took a lot of work to get people to slow down enough so we really started to understand um, how the criminal justice system worked, what their interactions with the police were, what their interactions with uh, the hospital emergency room, um, what their interactions were with um, somewhat with each other, but the um, uh, the health care they were able or not able to receive, and, and then the housing conditions were were terrible. You know, we someone would come in and say. Uh, so we we would go. I, I, my guidance was, what would a middle class person do about this problem? So the second part of the thing is, first you get the the, the issues, and best as you can, understand them and lay them out. The second part of the process is to then do that research. 
who would know about um, tenancy, tenants' rights in these single-room occupancy hotels? And then we would, um, um, the action could sometimes be as humble as we would have the, the tenant advocate come. And of course, at the beginning of this project, they were a bit horrified. They said, but these, this, there's crime taking place in those hotels. And I said, yes, the landlord's doing illegal things to these people. But <laughs> it took a while to really have um, what you think of as the advocates. Um, um, anyway, uh, the question will come up. Uh, the police came into my building, and they kicked in every door with one warrant. Is that legal? Well, of course, the landlord eventually doesn't want to repair every single door in the building, so they come and open the doors. But the, the, this, this would create a, uh, an interesting um, question for the tenant's advocate. who would be quite puzzled. And so we would often not get the reply for quite a while, but these were very, um, boy, if that was happening in, to us, we would say, you can't kick in my door. You know what I mean? And so, you know, this sense of um, what's fair and what's, you know, just and how our system works. Was um, was revealed to the the people that uh, we would have guest speakers come, and uh, often in response to one of these questions, you know, what are the symptoms of endocarditis, or um, uh, what are your rights um, at a hospital? Do you have patients' rights? And there's a patient advocate there, and how could you say a, file a complaint? You know, that kind of thing. So these people would come, and there was a a hundred drug users sitting on the floor in this room and there was no furniture but someone was doing a blanket drive so everybody had these blankets they were piled up to the ceiling it was a very um a humble and disarming um sort of group and they would you know be they'd give their speech and people would ask these questions and they'd always say to me boy these people are so smart and i'd say yes they are <laughs> it was kind of a surprise and what I, I mean, after a while I realized I wanted people to come and speak to the group because I wanted them to see who these people were and have that experience, have an experience of those people. But um, I think they initially thought I was having them come because they were so smart and we were so stupid. You know, we need mm -hmm. your information, that kind of thing. So it was a very, um, um, it went on and on. I mean, this is the thing about it. It can we had Saturday meetings at 2 o'clock. Nothing else is on at Saturday at 2. Not a doctor's appointment, you know what I mean? So it was a very um, engaging, um, uh, and it took a long time. Within a culture that's been underground and criminalized for a very, very long time, it took a long time, I think, for um, what you call the opinion leaders to, to say, yeah, they're not cops, they're not Christians, and they're not crazy, miraculously enough, because they get approached a lot to um, by um, Christians and cops and I don't know about people that are crazy but you know that I think I, I we fell into the crazy category and then they realized that uh, we weren't going to go away and we weren't going to create a career for ourselves with high pay so we could have them as our sort of I don't know um, our cohort or something so it was uh it was a lot of work. I mean, it's it's very old, our group now. It's 21 or 20 years old now. Yeah. So um, the uh, real, I think, principles of organizing that I might have to share were the structuring of a group so that it doesn't um, wrench itself to, apart, either by um, having too much conflict or no conflict. Um, both of those are a problem. And then also the temptation of... Um, imitating their oppressor, which is to become a service provider and have the other drug users be their clients. These are the real, these bubble up from time to time. And it's um, the strength of your uh, wording of your mission statement and the, um, you know, calling people constantly back to why are we meeting here. And um, so that was, I think, two more things on my list were, um, open every meeting with a reminder of why we're here and um, read the mission or the purpose and um, ending the meeting with reverence. And they did the moment of silence. I never put this in. So uh, the organizing that I learned was from these Nicaraguans, and they said that 
every group of people has um, their kind of spirituality, and you have to really listen for it. You don't want to bring yours. I mean, you could try that. And you listen for their language, and you listen for their, um, you know, their contradictions. Their, you know, being a drug user didn't mean you weren't racist or you weren't um, uh, sexist or, you know, um, it's, uh, in fact, I don't know if you have more of those problems, but um, I would always try not to panic and just keep thinking of, um, I wonder how um, we can bring that uh, to the group and have the group be thoughtful about um, why why 100% of our board is men and there's no women in here, <laughs> so, which, which wasn't bad. I mean, we had, at one point I looked up and, and um, if you look in the nonprofit volunteer sector, it's almost all women. So it's like I'm not apologizing for getting these men all excited about doing work for free in the community. Um, I didn't put on the list uh, very early on. We created a system where our budget was revealed for what it was. This is how much money we have. And um, I, I had a temptation to keep them in charge of things as much as possible so I wasn't constantly fighting with people. You know, if you, if you're my pet, you're going to get more privileges than someone who isn't my pet, and then I'm going to get anger from the people that I'm not privileging. So, the, turning things back to a group process of fairness um, was um, actually a survival technique for myself, but it's also, I think, a very uh, good way to um, have a group not uh, fall apart. Now you have, go ahead, Peter. And you made a very powerful statement. You didn't want them to imitate the oppressor by, uh, I thought you meant helping each other. Could you say more about that? I just kind of jumped out at me. So, well, the, um, I think that uh, many of the people that I meet have been clients of a system right. um, while they were in their mother's uterus. They They have not... They're the underclass. It's often very foreign then that this citizenship exists and this membership in a group and this um, caring can occur and actually be powerful, not just be, you know, well, and of course, I don't know, caring can always look quite pathetic. I don't care, you know, sometimes I think the more pathetic it looks, then the more subversive you can be because no one will want to turn that into a service because it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, yeah. <laughs> oh. And so you really kept them from servicing each other, which is an instinct, like you say, that's all around us. I'm sorry, my son's calling me, and I have to turn this off. So just hold on. Sorry, I never thought of this. He went to San Francisco this morning, so which is odd. Anyway. I'll take it later. So um, that yeah, the service provision is tough because, and I just have to say this: it's what I'm really grappling with on a sort of daily basis. Is the work that we do in in alleys for free to do this caring, and we've been in a very um, uh, hopefully most neighborhoods aren't. Well, actually, many neighborhoods are facing this now because these overdose deaths are so huge, and all through the state. Mm-hmm. So. But having taken this on, there's not a lot of leeway. Um, We can be quite serious-minded while we're doing our caring. You know, you need to know CPR. You need to carry. You know what I mean? It can get quite fraught. Lives lives are at stake. Pardon? Lives are at stake. Yes. It's it's um. So um, we've worked and worked and worked, uh, and uh, then money rains down from heaven, the government, and they've now given it to the very agencies that turned their backs while you were pleading for help in that alley. And um, they say sentences like, we can't, seem to be, we can't be seen to have anything to do with your project because it's illegal or it's unsanctioned or... You know, everywhere, you know, it's not legitimized, right? And now it's legitimized, and they are just right in there. No apologies or wink nudges or 
I don't know how. I mean, I have to think to myself sometimes, how would this not feel so terrible? Because you, you might as well instruct them how to do it. But um, it's it's sort of embittering, and um, they can lose the plot. And that's why um, you guys' work, abundant, you know, this um, ABC development is so important is because it's exactly what goes wrong with services is they can't remember what they're doing. And it's so important to know that you're saving lives, not building an empire, that you're saving lives, not making a living, that you're saving lives, not... And you can build an empire and make a living and do all those things, but you need to lead with this this other part of this or we create an industry where... Mm -hmm. My upset is the place I spent a tremendous amount of work on is now um, operating with no fairness or transparency and is um, not um, being guided by a principle of caring in that um, come in here, do your drugs, overdose, I stab you with some naloxone, your life is saved, I call 911, the ambulance comes, or whatever, you know, the, the great heroism of the emergency. And then... I just basically, you go back to the alley. You have no welfare, no housing, no uh, belonging, no, you know what I mean. So I view my work always is to build on to the next thing because surely we're not here just to to save their lives over and over again while they live in an alley. And then, well, we lobby for higher wages for ourselves and better working conditions and and counseling so we don't get trauma. You know what I mean? These things are now the great diversions away from, what I thought. Um, and, you know, I just have to say, I think what I have is a gift, and I think so do you guys. And there's a gap, and it's a very difficult and awkward one to try to... Um, to uh, Those are have important you, human things, making a living and being a hero and, you yeah. know... Have you seen uh, systems or care organizations who you feel do lead with genuine care and are committed to creating a community around the people who are there to serve. In our neighborhood, what's occurred, and this is a historical thing in our province, and it may have occurred across Canada, it may have occurred across the U.S. And when I was a smaller child, I remember that we had a government, and they had social workers, and there were places you went to for help, and then there were counselors. They were all employees of the government. And if you had trouble with any of them, you certainly knew where to go because you always know where their boss is. It's a hierarchy. So um, at some point, someone thought it was a great idea to have what they call community groups do these things um, on contracts from the government. But what's happened here is if you look, these community services now are $30 million a year, $60 million a year. The executive directors into, you know, 200000 pay, or even if it's 100000 it's, you know, quite a lovely thing to have and um, six ten weeks holiday off their board of directors is never voted from a group of members it's appointed by the executive director who has social contacts we need an accountant this is how you make a board where i think that and i actually was a bit taken back when this was really in its um, expansive phases in the 90s and i go to the government and say um this isn't we can't we haven't got any way to hold this group accountable and they say, oh, it's a community group. And I go, well, then what the heck are we? <laughs> you know, so I think, I think the most uncomfortable work is, is constantly feeling like you're criticizing a non, not-for-profits who fancy themselves to be um, asset-based community developers. They really do. I mean, they really think. And it's not much I can do about it other than to just keep plodding forward and try not to... Uh, lose the plot of our own group, but also to keep thinking, how can we build these groups? So right in the Constitution and bylaws, you create, um, you know, um, you create a const- an ability for any member or any 10 members or any faction who's starting to feel like the group has gone off the rails and is not um, keeping the mission in mind, that they can upset the cart and demand a um, an, a general meeting and challenge the board. And I mean, the board meetings of our groups are um, Vandu then became five other groups as well. 
where each group has its own very specific, um, you know, they had to basically break off because you couldn't have meetings that long. So the people on methadone have their own group and the people who drink non-potable alcohol. So um, anyway, the, those groups all form to keep um, uh, being advocates for that group, and they meet every week. Um, they meet twice a week. They'll often have a general membership meeting and a board meeting. And so they're, you know, very much um, immediate. Engaged. You know, they're very in touch with their members' issues. Now, some of them are giving back to the community, aren't they? Yes, I think, you know, I... Could you I, say um, a little bit about that? So a person who uses drugs is often a very um, demonized person and criminalized and I don't know if I need to go into details. Um, the uh, what our group allowed people to do, and I, you know, I didn't notice it at first. It's just sort of, I think most of this, uh, I, I'm to think that I'm a genius and I designed everything it, is wrong. What I like to do is keep a really tight structure at one end and then just allow chaos to take place because you've got such a tight structure at one end. I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but the mm -hmm. what um, I realized was happening to people was. They would go in terms of social status from being someone who had no social status at all to a volunteer who was making the community a better place, and that is a very well-respected person, certainly in Canada and in Vancouver. And uh, what do they do uh, to make the, the community a better place, the neighborhood a better place? Well, they the first things you know, and, and that's where you take the the uh, they, you negotiate these projects, like how are you going to structure them? First, it was simple things like um, picking up needles in alleys or going down alleys and looking for people in trouble and helping them and um, mm -hmm. um, the advocacy stuff. Um, um, it, if you can get little service provisions, there's always a danger that a drug user group becomes um, a project that does nothing but pick up garbage in alleys that are too dangerous for regular workers to walk down. You're always on the cusp of are we being right. exploited or not. But I think the other things that the, the users did was they attend endless meetings about um, hepatitis C and HIV and needle exchange and then community meetings about litter and the lack of toilets. And um, you just become a citizen who's engaged in whether your neighborhood's a better place. And then there's national work, there's provincial work, national work, and international stuff going on when they talk about drug policy. So um, there's certainly... Uh, a tremendous amount to do, and uh, it really can take people's, you know, it's they're they're in the van do forty hours a week, and they came because they found out they could get three dollars. <laughs> so I didn't put that in the rules for organizing. Yeah, um, people who have nothing, um, really, um, we have this ongoing raging debate often about the money. So it was three dollars at first because it was a dollar fifty to take the bus in Vancouver. And I convinced the funders that we had to have this money allocated as bus fare, and then and then we called it a, oh gosh, I don't know, we've called it whatever, honorarium. We'll call it whatever the government tells us to call it, because we're not going to get it out. So um, it's $5 now. And then if someone comes to a, a city hall meeting and it's about, um, I don't know, um, what do we meet with city hall about? Oh, they're always doing... A lot of these structures, I think uh, the drug user groups made the whole topic of of this uh, palatable to people and everyone wants to be seen to be reducing harm. So the city has committees they form and, and we show up and have the discussions. And, um, you, uh, so those open up. More money. So it's just a whole little schedule of pay because they have nothing. I mean, and we don't right. want to uh, uh, damage them by... You know what would they eat? People stand. Poverty is a very time-consuming activity. People stand. Full-time job. Yeah. And I've had they. Oh, go ahead, Peter. Did it have an impact on their use, their uses, their addiction at all? In addition to harm reduction and giving them a sense of community. And and we could never really get anyone to study this. And. Um, mm -hmm. I used to think to myself, how could this be? You know, but I, I re, it reminds me, and I don't know if John told me about this study. There's some study, and they take these unhealthy 
people who have smoke and drink and eat too much in two communities, and one has a high amount of um, community associations yep. and activities and the other one doesn't. Well, everyone in the one lives longer, but it isn't because they improve yep. their health habits. So I started to realize that might be what we were observing because um, just so you know, I don't end up knowing very much about drugs other than by accident. Um, one of the things that drug users do all day long, every day, is talk about drugs. And in Vandu, they don't talk about that. They talk about the next meeting. How's our funding? What's going to be the topic? Who's going to be the guest speaker? Who's taking the trip to Ottawa? Um, who's coming here? You know what I mean? What's the latest overdose? With? And we've got lineups of research. You know, so it's a, it's a very... Um, their heads are full of all this other stuff. But in terms of saying, do you think they're consuming less drugs? I would say if they're consuming the same number of drugs, they're doing it in a much more efficient way because <laughs> I they have so much other stuff they have to do. That's so, a great um, point. It's, it, it, it kind of, it's a great distraction from talking all the time about drugs to talking about what are we going to do. What are we gonna, yeah. Where are we going to meet? What are we going to do? And uh, to have a, what is it it's not a yeah. community talking about drugs. It's a community talking about action. And yeah. But you're early, really early saying, on. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What you're really doing is talking about moving away from a focus on self to a focus on the civic, on the collective, on us, mm-hmm. rather than just me, right? And. And, yeah, and, it's a wider perspective. I think you see someone hanging off a street corner and the, the weight of the world is on their shoulders. For sure, the reason they grow poppies in Afghanistan is because they are using heroin. You know, this kind of real scapegoating that's gone on and blame. And when they start to see themselves situated in a broader um, picture of society and who's who and, you know, it, it um, people can stand back from their lives um, just saying some of this work is, is tough and I've been discouraged by a lack of training for people who are organizing the unorganizable and also the lack of emotional maturity people can end up with in these positions because I had to train myself so that I've got someone who's just angry and just letting it rip. They are right at me. And they're saying, you wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for us. Because I was actually a paid worker. At first I wasn't. And, and um, uh, what I have to, in that moment, not think is, you know, that asshole, blah, blah. You know what I mean, what you might think. Um, you have to defend yourself. Or I'm out of here, I quit. This is abuse. Like, there's a thousand things you're going to think. But what I trained myself to think was, I am doing a great job. That guy is not afraid to tell me that. <laughs> yes, that's right. And he's sort of right. And I say, maybe we should broaden this discussion, and we could talk about how many other people besides me have jobs because of your misery. And you know what I mean. That, but it's a, um, it takes a, a kind of um, uh, I don't know it's what almost to call a it, distance. but it's training. It's like a clinical distance, so you don't take it personally. And you realize well, having an autistic child helped, I can tell you. <laughs> it's so funny. Man. Let me ask you one question. Let's open it up. I feel a little selfish being able to ask you the questions and other people want to also. What's your, this, so the, the uh, opioid addiction, the, the, uh, it's widespread now, at least in the States. What, how do you think about that? Do you have any way of thinking about what's going on with this? This kind of so-called epidemic in the, in the southern well, territories. I don't know if it's true in Canada also. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. I think. You, um, how do you think about that? It's a it's a um, it's a coping strategy, and very early on, there was less. I think there was less addiction generally. I think you know. I read these stats that say one in four women in North America or the U.S. is on antidepressants or something. That's a very large number of people who are medicated by drugs that are legal. So it's not just this part of it. And I just have to say that as background. But um, I think it was Bud who kept saying that at the beginning, that people are admired for their coping strategies, except drug users. And but kept saying people use drugs because they might kill themselves if they don't. And it's their way of getting through and getting by day after day after day. And um, once 
I could see that. It helped me a lot because um, they cost a lot of money. They cost, they're so hard to buy and they're, you know, you're going to get arrested. And like, it's a huge headache. A lot of sacrifices are made um, to make that the main priority of your life. Very, very puzzling to someone who doesn't put oblivion seeking above all else. And I just came to just respect that I don't put oblivion seeking above all else, and they do. But, but what I started to say was people use drugs or they don't. And when you can come to that place, then it allows you to work with people who use drugs and people who don't. Yeah. And it doesn't, um, you know, you start to just be more comfortable, like, like a, a foreign culture or something. Because this is also true. People use drugs, and then they stop using drugs, and then they start again. This is very common. And um, there's a sort of abstinence-based, um, uh, and some people are lucky enough, um, they just say that one thing, they quit once, and they're done. But if you look at data and research, and finally we're starting to get science on this, um, most people who have two years without using drugs have made 11 attempts before they got that two years. Yeah. And, of course, they don't design services around this. It, that I would, if I was going to design a service for something someone was going to have a go at 11 times, I would make it accessible, easy to get in, very encouraging. Oh, it didn't work out for you this time, you know. Where people get, often get, 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 so ashamed, get your 11 you know? times over with, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What to some extent, but to also, um, we've now many of our deaths, and I think in the United States this is it's true. Um, because we've got this prevalence of addiction, we've also got uh, a model that isn't working well, and it's mm-hmm. um, work these 12 steps or take Jesus into your heart and you're done, you're, you're good. And what is now being said all the time, it's a chronic relapsing condition. Um, for anyone who's ever stopped smoking cigarettes, when you are at that party and you you know, have a drink and then you decide to bum a smoke off someone and smoke again, you don't announce to all your friends that you're now back to smoking you just sneak that cigarette and you get right back to that uh, non-smoking business and i think that goes on in in um with everyone who deals with addictions and it's a um it shouldn't be cause shame the problem we're having Mm -hmm. now is with fentanyl and these drugs they have that one little um sneaky you know they sneak something and now they're dead they're found dead and um so we're in a very difficult um and it seems irreversible um Mm -hmm. Uh, let me, uh, Maggie, are there people, would you like to invite people to call in or ask questions or something? Yes, let's, let's do that. Um, so if you have called in, you can press star eight on your telephone and I'll see that and be able to unmute you. Um, and would love to hear your thoughts and um, your reflections on what we've heard from Anne, which is just amazing. Uh, so feel free to type into the chat or give us a call, star eight. And just so you know, John, I did list the principles in the chat box. So they are there. So anybody who, who looks at it can see Anne's uh, ideas about organizing. And we'll okay. post it, too, on the Abundant Community site, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, so, good. Uh, anybody calling in? Maggie? Uh, not yet, Peter. Okay. So let's just keep talking, Anna. Yeah. And let me ask another thing that I wondered about way back. Uh, it seems to me that a lot of the things that, uh, as an organizer, you've, you've uh, enabled came about because you approached people as though they that your concern was not that they be cured or fixed that yeah, that almost everybody that i run into when they think about addiction the issue period bottom line is how can we fix them get them cured and it seems to me that's a huge barrier to get over for most people, and that you came into this world with a a different way of thinking about it. Can you say something about that? 
Well, I can refer to autism again if you want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Dealing, um, my son repeats himself, and and he has behaviors. And I remember everyone thinking that um, my my family, uh, and especially, thought I had, uh, you know, this syndrome where I've made up that he has a disability. He doesn't really have one. It's just that I'm such a terrible mother. That's why he behaves that way. <laughs> so, um, it's humbling, and um. I think um, the simplest way to put it was um, that um, what we value about people isn't necessarily that they're using or not using drugs. And there's arguments about this in drug user groups. Some drug user groups say, we won't let anyone in here unless they're an active user. And they would never have had a non-user like myself as an employee. And um, it, it, you know, this kind of, and my sort of joke is we're not, going to test their pee on the way in here. So, and, and that's another point I make. If, if the only way you can tell that someone's taken a drug is by testing their pee, then why is it any of your business what drug they're on? I mean, most people are on something unless they're like Seventh-day Adventists or something. They're drinking coffee. They're, you know, there's all kinds of things floating around in our bloodstreams, and we get terribly puritanical when it comes to certain drugs. And it's very, it is upsetting. And I think um, for people who've never been around people who, like I said, make uh, seeking oblivion or being high one of the priority of their life every day. And I don't know if Vandu changes that. I don't know how many people um, reduce their drug use. I don't think they do necessarily. I just think that they have a whole bunch of other stuff that's their priority. And um, they they perform awfully well um, given, um, well. you know, if you look at what happens to drug users – Usually the thing that's frustrating you is that it's something that's happened because the drugs are illegal, like that they keep stealing your stuff and um, that they're not telling you the truth or they're, you know what I mean, these right. things happen. And these are artifacts. These aren't how the person yeah. is. This is yes, what's happening yes. to them. Just Let me uh, interrupt you for a second. We do have some callers in. Okay. I apologize for interrupting, but uh, Maggie, maybe you could uh, have them ask their questions sure. or make their statement. Okay, we, we've just um, got someone here from Illinois. Hi, it's Elizabeth McGrath, and I, I'm sorry I got here a little late, but I was an economics major in college, and so my first thought is how do you make money? How do you sustain your family? How do you make sure that your family's <clears throat> taken care of when you're dealing with people that there's not a, a lot of money around? Oh my goodness, you struck at the heart. Right now I'm living on welfare in Vancouver and um it's um very humbling or humiliating, mm-hmm. but um I haven't always had that. I've sometimes been employed um if a drug user group gets funded, then there's enough funding for someone to be the organizer. But mm-hmm. um what um it it uh I don't know. Not everyone's willing to do what I'm doing. And, um, right. Yeah, it's tough. I guess it's like missionary work or something, like, you know, to say we're setting aside all um, material possessions in order to do this work. Um, right, but to the corporation, then make sure that you have your black slacks and your white shirts and that you're f- provided food. And so you might be making lots of sacrifices, but you're some, in some degree supported by something larger. And it sounds to me like you're not supported by something larger. Well, and yet, I'm, and yet I'm, you do it. I, I um, like right now, in, on my personal level, what I do to make money is I'm on welfare, but um, there's, um, I'm trying to instigate, there's now a number of these initiatives that are going on. The problem is, to have someone who does the job of an organizer and then doesn't turn it into service provision. So mm-hmm. um, that's what I okay, think. Thank you, Elizabeth. We got keep getting more calls. Okay. So Maggie, can you give us another caller? Thanks. Elizabeth. Sure. Okay. Here we go. So we have another caller from Illinois. Or maybe not. Let's let's go on to Southwest Ohio. Hello? Hello? Yeah. Hello. Is this a caller? Can you hear us? 
Yes, thank you. So um, in Ohio, South, in Ohio statewide, we have a recovery ballot initiative being organized in, for the fall election to decriminalize possession, small amounts of drugs, and so on, and to get people into trauma care and drug treatment, for example. And I'm wondering if you have contact with people working on reform that might be parallel to that. The um, the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Project in Seattle has um, um, is a I'm trying to get it them to come to Vancouver because uh, despite Vancouver having a a reputation for having lenient police, we do not actually we have very high arrest rates. But um, when someone is not then arrested and rearrested and rearrested because they might the first time have a drug charge and then they miss court and then they're released on their own recognizance or they're released on bail, they violate their bail conditions, and we end up with people with uh, hundreds and hundreds of charges and they spend time in remand prison, which means they're waiting to see the judge. I assume that's why um, we're, the project you're talking about is to disentangle people with addiction so they can get on with addiction treatment without the interference of this constant jailing. Is that what the purpose right. of your project is? That's one of them. Yeah. Uh, uh, we might have, let's keep getting more callers. I'm not used to getting calls, and so you're, <laughs> you're pretty, <laughs> we don't know quite what to do when people are actually calling us. Calling in. So, so here we're going to, Calif- going to California. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear Hello. me? Yes, Hello. Yes, you can. California? Yeah, okay. Caesar here. Um, the uh, guests that you have on this program need to know that they have their own witnesses and their own uh, supporters in their audience, that there is a circle of people who are listening in and listening in periodically, and so they are the supports of the people who are doing this magnificent work. Uh, you do the work that we who just listen in should be doing ourselves, and you do it for us so that uh, organizers have their own uh, helpers and their own supporters and the other people who are in this audience. This program has been going on for a very long time and uh, does the job for the organizers that the organizers do for their own clients, and you deserve some recognition and some loving, tender loving care from your audience as well. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. More calls? Uh, uh, one more. Maybe? Yep, we've got um, okay. Illinois calling back in. So let's see. Uh, hello, can you hear us now? Yes, hello. Can you hear hello. me? Hello. Yes, yes, we can. Um, this is Phil uh, from uh, Illinois or Indiana. And I had the good fortune of being with Anne and John in Vancouver. And one of the things that Anne taught me, among many things, was that harm reduction is also for the community and not just for individuals. And I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that, Anne. Yes, the um, this um, uh, it's it's a the 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 harm to the community is for one thing we have a sort of I don't know, a pit that any of our children can walk into, the more um, expansive and lucrative and um, available illegal drugs are at the low, at, at a cheap price everywhere, um, the worse our communities are in that they're obviously operating under a you know, criminal gang system with um, either people producing or importing illegal drugs and... Um, there's violence uh, for people uh, competing for money from drugs. There's robberies between two drug dealers. And then there's the real harm to um, people who get involved in this and find that they um, are poisoned by drugs. And um, our hospitals are full of people who are ill. There's diseases being spread. There's a tremendous amount of harm. And um, I think uh, it's interesting that you point that out because I often forget that people will interpret our project as coddling these 
people who are just ruining our communities. And I think um, uh, it's, I call it floating the ships in the harbor. It will be a far better community for all of us if we don't step over people on the street or look at another um, group of people as undeserving of care. That's amazing. You know, we're near the end of our time. Uh, and uh, Any final thoughts, John or uh, Anne, or then I'll add mine? Anne, uh, if, uh, if people, I think you have so much experience <clears throat> and knowledge in an area where very everybody's concerned, but very few people have... Uh, moved in the in the effective directions you have uh, if people wanted to get in touch with you uh, how would they do it well i i'm on facebook which <laughs> everyone's mm-hmm. afraid to be on now um because i do the facebook pages for the vancouver area network of drug users i do it for the bc association of people on methadone and the western aboriginal harm reduction society so i'm um <laughs> I call Facebook poor people's email. I don't know if it's really true. So that's an easy way to get a hold of me. But if you mm-hmm. go to my Facebook page and you, you press about, it actually has my cell number on there. So I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, if you're not on there, um, I wonder where else I'm up. My my home phone number is listed in the Vancouver telephone book. on. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we could just post it somewhere if, if I'm easy to get a hold of, I think. We could put my phone number up here if, if yeah. that's what would work for people, or an email. Yeah. One other thing, there's recently uh, been a book about the effort there in Vancouver, uh, and uh, I, I'm having a little trouble recalling its name. Do you know the one I mean? Fighting, the, it's called Fighting for Space. Fighting for Space. And the uh, several people are authors. Or no, one it's person. Travis Lupick, L-U-P-I-C-K, I believe, yes. L-U-P-I-C-K. And would that be a pretty good way for people to learn in much more detail about what's been happening in terms of harm reduction in Vancouver? Yes, I I mean, it's very descriptive in terms of the long haul of, of what occurred. Yeah. Um, it's the story of some of my work, which is much more... Um, you know, we do the illegal work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> that's the other, the other reason to not be employed. There's there's a number of reasons. Uh, I know what people on welfare are treated like, and it's not. It's really deteriorating. So I always say I'm mystery shopping <laughs> the welfare system. Yeah. But no one can fire me for doing something um, that's you know unsanctioned or outside the law or whatever. But anyway, so it, that does tell that tale, and it also tells the tale of the. Um, one of the big NGOs here that got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's still here, but the leadership has now moved to New York City, and they're working at the Washington Heights. Um, yeah, so people could follow up with that book, and, and uh, you're very significantly involved in it, in the story, so I can commend it to other people as well. Yeah, I mean, oh. if there's, um, if if anyone out there in... Um, what are we in? Internet land knows how to train um, and fund this. These, these social movements need people to know how to do this work and um, and do it in take the high road. You know, we might as well build on what each other has can teach each other rather than having to feel like you're alone and you're starting over in every community. Absolutely. And Thank and one me. other one other reference. Uh, there was a book some while ago that you gave me. Uh, there are three co-authors, and uh, it's, it's got a lot of uh, uh, information about things that have happened in terms of, of the neighborhood, harm reduction. There are poems, stuff about uh, your, your co-worker, Bud. Uh, what's the title of that book? I think it's called Raising Shit, and it has a swear huh. word in the title, which <laughs> yeah. So that's the other text for anybody who wants to follow up on this yeah. raising shit. And there are three authors, but I think if you just put that in, there are no other books with that title, so it'll come up. <laughs> yes. 
So, well, that's uh, what the, one of the old organizers told Bud. He said, free shit, but don't let it, you know. <laughs> and you're, uh, I just want to thank you so much. Your, your, your spirit and your uh, uh, commitment is just stunning. It's just uh, like no other. I just so appreciate what you're doing and the way you talk about it. It's so compelling. I just want to sit and listen forever. But thank you so much for giving us a little bit of time. And I'd love to do this again. Uh, you're just so generous, even in this moment. You're so generous, and Thank you so much. Any final thoughts, Anne, you'd like to say? Am I seeing someone in Toronto? Is there some event on that we're going to um, <laughs> commiserate? Or Are you with us, Anne? Yes. Can you hear me? I can't. Yeah. Yeah, any final words? <laughs> no, just that, um, you know, I look forward to um, uh, this movement of organizing in neighborhoods is, is really, no matter what what we're facing, it, it, there's no way around it. It is the only thing we can do. We can do it free. We can do it, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of discouraging news day after day, but I think mm-hmm. the solutions are... Um, yes, that based community development and the neighborliness and kindness we can show one another. A lot of wisdom. A lot of wisdom. You're proof of that, Anne. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, John. I think, Maggie, we need to close out because we're right at the edge of our time space. Right, right. Well, thank you. This has been just an incredible conversation. Uh, and Peter's word of generosity is what was coming up for me, Anne. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you to our callers uh, and to the uh, people writing in the chat. This has been a great conversation. Uh, our next conversation will be on Tuesday, May 8th with Tom Alina. And we'll be talking about how restorative justice takes place in the neighborhood. Uh, until then, visit our website, AbundantCommunity.com. We will include Anne's organizing principles. This uh, transcript will be on uh, soon, and there'll be much more to be looking for. And if you'd like a copy of those organizing principles, just jot us a note, and we're happy to send that to you. Uh, so this brings our program to a close today, and thank you again for joining us. So long. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Okay. Bye, Anne.